Welcome to True House Stories. Good evening and good afternoon wherever you are in the world. I am Lenny Fontana coming out of New York City each and every week live for you on the dial. This week, we scour the earth always. And I love the UK. I love the UK for a couple of few reasons. Number one, I've always enjoyed everyone that is part of our music industry because they're so passionate and they know everything about what everybody else is doing. They're so well-educated and well up on music because they record buying and searching for music was always a big thing with a lot of people in the UK, you know, um, going to record shops and stuff was like key, key moment every weekend for people that would Stop in the in London, for example, or going or went into Manchester in some of the shops, and they would scour looking for you know the, these obscure records, and sometimes these underground producers, and or underground artists that necessarily are not your pop Janet Jackson or you know Madonna-ish stuff. And the same goes with our house music stuff. There is different genres of house music, as we know. You know, you got that EDM-ish stuff, electronic, and then. You have house, and then you have different genres, soulful or you know, vocal house or or African style house. And this happens to be a soulful. Today I'm gonna to talk about more of a soulful house moment. And I like to welcome in the in our soulful house genre, one of the best I know in the game, Mr. Richard Earnshaw from the London, England, United Kingdom. Richard, how are you, brother? Good, thank you. How's it going? Pretty good, thank you. And thank you for having me. Thank you for actually agreeing. It took we, you know, we're so many months ahead of schedule that we have to go. I got to go back to November and ask him, "Can you do May?" And he said yes. And we and we're so proud to have one of the best muso. Remix of producer, DJ, mastering engineers that I know in our game. He is really great. And I remember when he started having these records come out on Sulfuric, and it was just mind-blowing that this guy was doing these jazzy chords, and, and it was just sultry. You'd hear it and go, wow, this guy is the bomb. So welcome, welcome, my brother. Welcome. And that's a long time ago, but we're now here to forward. He's going to tell you everything he's doing. <laughs> First thing I want to ask, as I ask every participant that's came on this show, how are you doing since we've been in lockdown to now? How are you coping? Where are you up to in your life? Well, I suppose, like many, it's been quite a troublesome sort of 14 months or so. Um, there's, there's a real kind of positive, negative pendulum, I think, that's been sort of swinging away through the year. You know, when it all started, you know, it was, uh, we were lucky we had a, a incredible spring weather. So it was beautifully warm. So, you know, out, you know, on the bike a lot and just enjoying essentially just a massive summer holiday um, and still being productive and still being busy in the studio. Um, but obviously there's no live performance of any description. And, you know, eventually you start to kind of, you you, you start to miss it. And then you realise how much, how important it was as a as a process, as a part of the music making process, the expressive nature of music. You know, I can sit in the studio all day long, every day, every week, every month, and and making records. But 
they only really come alive when obviously you hear them being played in a live in, in a, uh, a social environment or you get to play them yourself. That was obviously taken away. And then you start to realise how much of a token mechanism all of that is um, for just the whole bigger picture. I mean, I'm a parent of two little rascal boys who are getting bigger and rowdier and noisier by the day. And, you know, those very precious moments of waiting for the plane, you know, or sitting on a plane for a, a couple or a few hours, that decompression period where, you know, the where some would go, oh, I must be really lonely traveling on your own all the time. But actually, that's where I would sort of re-energize myself is where I'd have time to think, you know, I'm surrounded by noise, I make noise for a living. You know, so, you know, when I get in the car, the stereo stays off. You know, when I'm out on the bike, there's no, you know, ear pods or anything like that. And when I'm at the gym, it's quiet. I don't need a playlist to kind of G me up on whatever I'm doing. I just want and need silence. And you, and I started to realise how important that part of the, you know, the travel part was in terms of me getting to the other end, doing my, my job, having it again on the way back and being able to walk in through the front door and go, okay, I'm ready for it. Let's go. Right. It's like, it's like a reset, right? Yeah, it is. It's a massive reset. You know, obviously for some, um, well, for everybody, I suppose, in varying degrees of severity, you know, the, the financial uh, part of it was obviously difficult to manage as well. Some more than others. I mean, I'm, I'm lucky that I've always considered myself to be a musician and producer before a DJ. Because um, they we'll get, that in a moment. we'll get into that in a moment because we're going to want to know about that. Well, we're really going to get into that. But I know what you mean. I totally know what you mean. So, yeah, I was lucky I could just carry on working, really, and just do my thing. And so Nothing really ever changed as far as the home setup went, right? No. No, nothing really changed. And we live in a beautiful part of the country as well. We actually, um, I'm sorry to disappoint, not in London, um, okay. but live on, live on the south coast. Uh, and it's by the sea. We're surrounded by countryside. It's very, very chilled. Um, it's very close to London. It's only an hour and a half away. So, you know, still, as a Londoner, I need to be close enough to be able to just jump in the car and go, gosh, I'm back in on home turf kind of thing. Metropolitan, here we come, here we come, right? Yeah. So it's um so we've been very, very lucky. You know, it's been sort of pandemic through rose tinted glasses, I think, for us. Um, definitely. So um Hey, it's I'm I, I bless you all, you know. I mean, um my heart is with you guys, always been, you know, since the beginning of my career. Yeah, it's you know it's it, it's been been tough, really, really tough. It's been tough enough for for me in a in a what I would consider to be a very fortunate position, you know. So it's always trying to remain mindful of the fact that there's other people that need need help and support that are not in as you know a privileged position um, to have space. For example, you know, yeah. as soon as as soon as that we were sort of after the first lockdown last summer, as soon as we were allowed to socialise more, you know, sort of like my friends in London, it's like, look, get out of London, come down here, enjoy the peace, and listen to the sea, have a beer, you know, just to give them like that reset, you know, that you mentioned, just to get away from the sort of almost the incarceration of the luxury apartments in, in big cities, you know? So well, it's... Um, 
you're blessed to have a family surrounding. So you're never been alone. And I've spoke to a lot of people who are alone. That's the tough part of it. Being not able to go meet anyone and then be living alone, alone. I'd say there's a double-edged sword to that. So you're absolutely right. When you've got um, the support network of your partner and or your children, if you have children, it's been been brilliant. So my mum is on her own and she's done the whole thing on her own. Um, And, you know, she was finding it difficult at times being on her own. I was phoning her up most days, you know, how you doing? But one of the advantages that perhaps she hadn't really figured out when it was really starting to get just a little bit oppressive, the constant doom and gloom, the bad news, the stats, all the, you know. I was like, well, you're really lucky, Mum, because you can just turn the TV off. You can choose to turn all of that media off and just be in your own little bubble and look after yourself and keep yourself busy, you know, plenty her garden, do this, do that, blah, blah, blah. And she was like, you know, I never thought of it like that. I can actually switch off to all of this media sort of sensationalized, you know, a sensationalism of the whole thing. But when, you know, children are asking, why can't I see my friends? Why am I not at school? You know, um, all that kind of stuff. And it's constantly there. You know, you can't switch off from it. So it got to a point where I was like, right, guys, we're literally not turning the TV on now. I don't really care what Boris has got to say for himself. We're just not listening to it, not watching the news, not reading the news. It's a lot better for us in terms of our mental health and our well-being to just not be constantly like zapped with all of this misery and bad news all the time. Um, Because it was really starting to, it was getting everyone down, you know, no loads of people that did the same thing. It's like, I just can't do it anymore. TV's off, bosh, that's it. You know, let me give you our side. You ready? (laughs) So up to the point of January 6th and, you know, we had that whole thing happen. All of you watched how the Capitol was oversacked with people from the Trump uh, parade that he had, you know, that whole thing. It was every day you just turn the TV on for sensational TV. What did he say? No. You'd just be watching, waiting for some crazy shit to come out of his mouth. You go, no, he didn't say that. No, he did say that. So it's kind of strange now that we're in a time where you don't hear about anything coming out of Washington. When it feels like the same thing about the mask. Wait a minute, I'm not supposed to wear a mask no more? Wait, that doesn't feel right. You know, it's like being naked. It's like it's like anything we're dealing with. So, yes, I know what you mean. They got to a point even on this side of the world that we were saying, God, just shut the TV off because you get to a point. Mm-hmm. You can't. And then Facebook, you get like the roll call. <laughs> It'd be like a roll call. I'm alive. I'm alive. This person's gone. Oh, shit. This one died. Oh, no. This DJ died. This one's sick. So you can't get away from it. You just, you'd have to just shut everything down, like put the phone away. And some of us are too, too locked to our phones and digital media. It's hard to say, okay, I'm not going to do none of the social media anymore. You can't. Mm-hmm. In our world, especially as much as we do what we do with music, 80, 75, 80% of our work is, is the social media now. You know, besides what we're, you know, feeding it. It's like the petrol is the music. The petrol's the music. 
And but the machine is social media because that's what keeps everyone locked into you as a, in your fan club. And but it's just been like I started looking at Facebook and wanted to burn it. It was like at a point you just got this thing doesn't have any good news. It never has any good news. It's like always got bad news, you know. Anyway, thank you again. Here we go. As we know, you're a museo. You know, I know how you know in depth you are with your music. So, as a young lad, how does music find you, or how did you find the music? We should say. Um, well, I was brought up in a very uh, a heavily musical environment. So, my dad um, was a very gifted musician, jazz guitarist, um, and a sound engineer at the BBC. Oh, uh, my mother was until the pandemic still uh, performing as a soprano at the Royal Opera in Covent Garden. And she's been there for, I think, about 700 years um, by the look of it. So um, so I, I kind of, you know, I'm pretty sure that there would have been music playing when I was born. You know, it was just straight into, there's always music everywhere. Um, and I started playing the piano when I was seven. Um, not voluntarily, I might add. Um, I really wasn't very cool with the idea of having to do piano practice and have lessons every week and work towards exams and all that kind of thing. But, you know, it was one of those sort of parental obligation, I suppose. You know, they did so much and they're like, all we're asking for you to pay us back for everything that we do for you is just to do this little thing. Um, and my mum was always like, you'll thank me one of these days. Mark my words, the finger will come out. You'll thank me. You'll thank me. And, you know, it's really, really annoying. She was right. Um, so, yeah, so seven. I, we must all thank your mother for putting you through piano. <laughs> thank well, you. Look, hopefully, if you're watching. She, <laughs> thank you. Um, so, yeah, so just, it was conventional sort of classical training on the piano um, right through till. I was about 15, I think it was. And then I sort of, the maturity level sort of leapt. And so my my performance ability leapt in terms of not so much the technical side, but more of the, uh, the emotional and sort of uh, performance interpretations of what I was playing. Um, and then I was under scrutiny from piano coaches saying, no, you, you don't want to interpret it like that or play it like that. And I was like, hang on a minute. You know, I'm playing all the notes in the right order. So surely the interpretation is is my input. And they were kind of, yes, it is, but no, it isn't. So I was starting to sort of dive a little bit more into expanding my knowledge of harmonies and tampering a little bit with modes and jazz and all this kind of stuff. And it, more importantly, improvisation. Mm -hmm. I was like, well, I've got all of these notes here. Uh, surely I must be able to play any of them in any order I like, more or less, and create stuff, you know. And at the time, I was heavily into, um, you know, going down into the West End of London and uh, piling into some of the music shops um, and looking at all this new technology that was starting to sort of filter through to a more affordable consumer. Um, I'd say what we're talking about, sort of 1988 and 89. So I'd have been 14. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it was brilliant. I was just making beats and I was like, wow, it's making noises and I'm doing things. And then I'd start to play sort of 
more jazz-inspired chord structures and melodies. And I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, I, I didn't even know um, that the music that was starting to sort of ferment itself within me was what we know or was known then as, as Bogus Garage and Soulful House. You know, it was like, I didn't know anything about that scene. I didn't even know you could earn a living out of it. <laughs> Can I ask you something as well? From the piano instruction, what were you trained under? Was it classical music for the start of it, or was it jazz improvisation? It was classical. It was conventional classical training from the get-go. Um, and then I chose to sort of swerve and maneuver away from that because I wanted to explore a more creative side of playing. Um, and I was really getting into writing music and familiarizing myself with arrangements and the technology synthesis. So from there, I developed that and then through college and I went to university, um, did a music degree. And I was, you know, my dissertations were all on synthesis. I was really heavily involved and I started to feed off from my dad as well on the sound engineering side of things. So okay. I was just kind of harvesting all this stuff, you know. Yes, one more time now, because I'm also classically trained. This is the question now. Uh, jazz improvisation, blues scales and all that, was that all learned in college years? Or you picked that up as you were listening and just starting to figure Pure. out... Purely by ear. Because I, I, I got to a certain stage, I think, and I was able to then study the books because they were they were books back then. There was no let's Google jazz. Yeah, right. <laughs> or what's, yeah. the, what's the best one? Learn learn piano in three weeks or whatever it is. <laughs> YouTube. Wait, YouTube. How to play jazz chords? Wait, no, there was no such things like that. No. So I had, you know, I was buying and reading books, but I'd acquired enough knowledge of the theoretical side to understand what it was I was reading. Gotcha. So then it was, just a question of, it was just a question of putting it into practice then. Um, and I was having a brilliant time. You know, I was exploring all this sort of new territory um, as a performer, um, as a musician, as a writer, a producer, you know, it was, I was doing my sort of, uh, my GCSE music. So I was, when I was 15, 16, um, you know, I, my composition for my music was all done on a four track cassette machine. Um, and just layering stuff, beats, noises, you know, it was just a constant exercise. And then you'd be like, if I do any more, it's the quality is going to get so bad. They won't be able to hear anything at all. So it's like, you know, start again, new tape, you know, right, let's see where we can, you know, layer things up slightly differently. And it just, the whole thing excited me massively. I was like, this is, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but basically when, you know, I've gone through, I wanted to go to university, not just because I wanted to continue with my musical training, but I also wanted to just leave home and just get out there on my own and see what the world was doing, you know? Right. Um, so, and throughout the whole process of my education, say from about, I would say 14, 15, I was like, I'm going to do music for a living as a career. I don't know how. Bold no, move. Bold move. I'm just, oh. when I get out of that door, when I get my, my scroll and my, my silly square hat, you know, saying, well done you, I'm going to go, right, I'm, I'm just going to do it. I don't know what it is. I don't know how. Um, and it was at university that I met my friend Mark Horwood, 
who, with uh, a guy called, uh, who goes by the name of Sir Piers, the three of us basically started Fusion Groove Orchestra. So straight out of university, myself and Mark were, you know, coming out of doing all this properly hectic um, music stuff. And we met Piers in a pub because um, I moved out of London down to the South Coast because Mark was like, yeah, you've got nothing in London to keep you there, have you? You may as well just move down here. It's wicked. I was like, all right, great. So um, I leave university. I tell my parents, see you later. I'm going to leave London. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, and they were just, I suppose they were there by silence. They were supportive. They were just like, well, he's got balls. So let's just encourage him to see what he does and what happens. And so Fusion Group also happened, and I was like, oh, this is, I'm loving this. Beats, crunchy beats, jazz, vocals, songwriting, actual songs, all this kind of stuff was all coming together in this melting pot. And then I was like, wow, there's an actual scene for this. There's an actual scene for this stuff. And I was starting to hear names like Louis Vega, Kenny Dope, you know, Masters of Work, David Morales, Tony Humphreys, Lenny Fontana, all these guys. And I was thinking, wow. How do they how do they do what they're doing? And then one thing led to another. And I've I wish I'd saved it to this day, actually. My answer phone message um on my old, 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 old mobile phone from Brian Tapper. Because I sent him a DAT via FedEx of the people are people. And he phoned me up and he said, Yo, we gotta we gotta work this record, man. This is this is it. And I was like, Who's Brian Tapper? So I was like, you know, trying to find out who this bloke was. And it's like Urban Blues Project. Who are they? Kleptomaniacs. So I think I've heard of them, you know. And then it's, I was really just finding stuff out as I was going along in a, you know, sort of quite naive, you know, coming out of uni with this so called brilliant music degree from the University of London, but literally had no idea what I was doing. Um, so it was, I was properly learning on the job. Um, and then, I mean, I know it's cliche, but the rest quite literally is history. You know, when People Are People came out and suddenly I was sort of scraped off the, you've just come out of university and then thrown into the sort of right to the, not to the top of the pile by any stretch, but certainly managed to sort of leap a few rungs up very quickly. Um, and then the pressure's on. It's like, right, okay, so I've made this record that sold a massive amount. I've got, to, I've, I've got to, you know, I've got to keep it. I've got to be consistent. I've got to keep doing this now, you know. Don't want to be a one-trick pony. So was this the first commercially available record ever from you? First? It was the first one as Richard Earnshaw. Got it. So Six. before that, we had the Fusion of Orchestra stuff. I think we, we the very first one was a cover of If Only I Could, which was, uh, that was um, licensed to Defected about four years ago. Um, and then we had The Dream, which there was a double pack of that. We did a couple of good remixes for um, Slip and Slide. And there was one we did for Peppermint Jam as well, which is Roshan Murphy. Um, uh, what was the track called now? Oh, I've had a total brain clot. <laughs> It'll come back. Is that the one with Boris Lugosh? Boris Lugosh, yeah. Um, Positiva. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. So, you know, it was, we were, there were noises being made. You know, and okay. So let's get let's get deep and dirty now. Okay. Technical speaking, at the time when you started, first keyboards you had at that time, if you remember. I still have it here. My very first synthesizer that I bought for myself in 1994. 
Which one is that? Well, I'll show you. Turn it, turn it, turn it for the people at home. Okay, so it is this one here. It's the Yamaha SY85. FM synthesis. FM synthesis. Yes. It was just, I did have uh, like a really crappy one before that, but that was the first one I bought, which was like proper. You know, I felt like I'd achieved my dream when I was, a, you know, a 12 year old kid in those music shops playing on these synthesizers that I had no idea how anybody could afford. <laughs> And then, exactly right, because you would see three thousand pounds, five thousand yeah. pounds. It's like you're going. Yeah. So I was, and I, and I got that one. I was like, oh, I've got an actual keyboard. It's got a built-in synthesizer uh, sequencer. Sorry. In fact, if I just pull this out, this is the kind of reason why. Right, we here we go. Out. This is this is this is going to be one of those things. So everyone, show it. Right. That. What is, is that? That is a cassette of Y eighty five demo tape. Yeah, so on here are five tracks. They've even got titles. And oh, where we go? There we go. Got Aura Evolver Highland Miss Vision of Hope Got the Groove. So on there, these are the first ever things that I wrote on that keyboard. With the in nineteen ninety four. With the internal sequencer, sequencer all on board. All on the, on the inboard sequencer. I've got other tapes here. If I mean, I've even got. I mean, I haven't listened to this for ages, but look, this is basically some Fusion Groove Orchestra demos on here. Fusion Groove Orchestra. Check that, out, everybody. Cassettes. You know what that is, people? Analog tape cassettes. That was the very first thing I committed to any form of media which would have been 1989. That was my GCSE composition for my exam on a four track. I've got it all. It's all up here. Tapes and tapes and tapes of stuff, which I should probably, well, I am in the process of re-digitizing them, so I've got them all on Pro Tools, but I bet you there's some samples in there that I can sample my own self from like 30 years ago. <laughs> In your former self. But here's the question for those that understand at home. What does that mean onboard sequencer and eight track? Because people, you know, we have people that are laymen, you know, they don't really know what we're talking about. Can you quickly like break that down to it? Well, I mean, the onboard sequencing was all done in sort of, it was like a step sequencer. So they do exist now. I, I see that um, Native Instruments have just brought out the new Machine Plus which is a standalone unit. So it's not just a controller. It has its own inboard processing, step sequencing, and all that kind of stuff. So it is an incredibly tricky and laborious way of making music, is, is how I can put it. You totally. When you compare it to, I mean, I don't use Ableton, but I have. And the fact that you can just have a folder full of loops and samples and noises and bits and pieces, and you can just drag and drop, and the algorithms are so good, it's just like, yeah, we'll tempo match that. Um, you know, you can gen even my son made a record um, on the iPad Garage Band. Really? In, yeah, in a couple of hours, he's like, "Daddy, I've made this." He was only he's like ten years old, eleven years old at the time, and I was like, "Dude, that needs a top line," and that is a cracking little tune. You know, it's the, the even though it's very easy to, as the older generation of the producer, 
it's very easy to go, oh, you know, kids these days don't know how easy they've got it. You know, in our day, we had to spend a million pounds and, you know, we had to stripe our tapes so we could record vocals and sing to this and MIDI would do that and the synths would blow up and everything was out of tune. And da-da. it's amazing we ever made records with all the stress that we had trying to make records. You know? um, but, but at the same time, but, a 10-year-old can grab an iPad and go, hey, I'm being creative. What do you reckon to that? So you do, there is, you know, there's, I think that the, uh, the, the pros almost certainly outweigh the cons of the ease of making music because, you know, whatever you put into the easy process of making music on whatever platform you're using, what comes out the other end, it goes in crap, it's coming out crap. It's as simple as that. Sure, but here's the difference of back then to now. In order to work in a room, you had to know what you were doing. And understand the the gear that you're working on, you know. Whereas a laptop, like you said before, this YouTube generation can quickly watch a film, and next thing you know, they're making everything what we call band in a box. But back in those days, like you striping tape, knowing how to get sounds right, you had to know what you were doing to make it right. And it was only a few that knew how. And I could say a few; it was more than a few. But comparison now, there's tons of people, bedroom producers making music. Doesn't mean it's good, but they're making it now. Because of that, definitely. I think it's it's great that the the accessibility of music making making has um, opened up the doors to. Um, I'm trying to think the best way to to phrase this. I want to say less privileged, but you know, in 1980, whatever, you had to have invested a colossal fortune into buying the equipment to be able to make music. That didn't necessarily make you a great musician or producer. You just had money, essentially. Um, whereas now, those that have are only able to be able to buy a laptop and just get some software and to do stuff, but they have proven themselves to become incredibly gifted producers. Sure. That perhaps 25 years ago, 30 years ago, they would never have had that opportunity. You know, so... It's, I think it's important to recognise that even though music has become easier and more affordable to make, yeah. it has also, as much as there's a lot of shit out there as well, let's not you know gloss over the fact that there is a lot of badly executed music. I'm not saying creatively, because that's a subjective matter, but just, no, that sounds awful. It just sounds bad. Um, but on the flip side, you know, it's allowed some people to literally come out of nowhere and make some absolutely fantastic music, you know, for less than a thousand dollars, you know. So now, that, software Bosch, there you go. Got a new track. You think that is awesome? Here's a, here's the next question about this. You know, your dad being a BBC engineer, you said, or technician? He was a sound engineer. Sound engineer. So I'm going to presume that he worked on the Neve consoles because I remember BBC had neves and stuff or you know high-end stuff there they had neves ssl and custom built stuff you know crazy business em emi consoles from the 60s like the like the beatles on and that stuff uh did he give you pointers as you were coming up as far as the sonic you know fundamentals of mixing and engineering and stuff or you just picked this all up because you were around it um, I used to take the odd trip down to the BBC and just and watch him work. Um, but a lot of it was just, it was all about patience. You know, it's like you, you've got a good ear, use it. 
you know, and that's something that res- has resonated with me since year dot. You know, it's even now when I'm, I speak to people, sort of the next gen, well, the next generation or two. You know, I forget that I'm actually quite old now. Um, and there are, you know, people coming through the ranks, sort of 25 years my junior, and you know, a lot of questions. The great thing about social media, you know, sharing some actual useful information. You know, how do you get your sound? What do you do here? How do you do that? And more often than not, it's like just be patient with your craft. You know, if your motivation is to make a piece of music as quickly as possible and get it out there as quickly as possible to try and get that chart placement as quickly as possible um, to get a gig so you can fill your social media with pictures of yourself at a festival as quickly as possible, then I'm really not the person to be talking to. Um, there are many other people far more better qualified than I to help you and guide you through that process. For me, it's like take time. You know, um, Don't be afraid if the mix isn't quite sounding right to just drop all the faders back, start but- again. But here's the deal, bro. How do you like this when people say, well, I did that whole record in a day. And I'm like, I don't know if that's possible. Hearing some of these records, you know, do everything in a day. Not an instrumental. I'm talking about writing a song. The vocalist comes in. They program the whole thing. You're like, and within a few hours? They don't even say a day. A few hours. I'm like. I think the fastest track that I've ever done from start to finish, in terms of the creative process, notwithstanding the mix, you know, and et cetera, I think is probably four and a half hours, five hours from laying down the first kick drum. And I've got the, you know, the idea, I've probably been thinking about the idea before I've even got into the studio, because that's often what I'll do when I'm out on the trails on the bike or whatever. I'm thinking about certain projects and how I'm going to approach them. So when I actually sit down in the chair, you know, within the space of an hour, I've got just a basic kick snare hat and I've got some musical ideas and I'm starting to sort of develop those. I tend to work in a way that, especially if I'm working with a vocal, um, I like to, before I start getting into the, the nooks and crannies of how it's going to ultimately turn out, arrangement is always the first thing that I approach. So, I keep it really, really simple to start with, and I map it out. So, you know, it's, I've got to start, middle, and an end as quickly as is conceivably possible. And then once I've got that, and I'm like, okay, well, if the rain, arrangement's sound, the rest of it is basically like, um, you know, filling in the gaps in the ways that I know that I want to do that. Whereas I know that some people might um, produce a record um, whereby they run like a 32-bar loop and they then get the track, and it's like there's the there's the vibe, and then it's more of a subtractive arrangement from there on in. They'll just kind of strip it yeah. down, build it up. But it seems like sometimes like they're really proud about how fast they got it done. More than the, who cares? You know how I look at it is who cares how long it takes? It's what the end result is going to be. You know, like it doesn't sound great when you hear the ending. If it's oh, a, I'm, track, I'm it's a procrastinator. Yeah, I mean. I can't see you telling me, well, four or five hours with mix and all done, goodbye. And you feel very confident and relaxed that, hey, what I'm going to put out there is going to be perfect for the times. I, I mean, I've pulled records back because of that. You know, I don't feel personally. No, I think it's, but I th- a lot of people that have this sort of idea of, 
having to get music done quickly is because the environment that the music eventually ends up in is moving so quickly. And it's, it's like keeping up with the Joneses, you know, it's like, oh, well, if people are only buying records on download platforms for a period of, you know, two, three weeks, or if, if the, the support I'm only going to get for a week, um, or then the Spotify thing, the blah, 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 you know, the constant pressure, they feel it's like, well, okay, I've just got to get this music out as quickly as possible, as fast as possible, bosh, 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 bosh. Um, and it's, you know, that I, I just don't, I, I can't subscribe to that sort of method in the same way that even as a label, we don't, you know, we're not, we, we put very little out, but what we do put out, we make sure performs to the very, very best that we can get it to perform because it's best for everybody. It's best for the songwriters. It's best for the session musicians that have performed on it. It's better for the artist, the label, the vote, you know, it's better for everybody if something really digs its heels in and you work it over a longer period of time. You know, if you start releasing, you know, like five million records a week, that really only serves the label. It doesn't serve anyone else, in my opinion, I because think- the label is getting all that money in, you know, and it's getting its 50% or whatever percentage of it it's getting. And the 10 different records or 12 different records that have been released that month then you take that money and the share of it that's due to the artist and then divvy that out to probably 30 or 40 or 50 people that have been involved in the process of making those records. Then you've got to think to yourself, right, okay, you know, that's not great, is it? Right. But we really try to create space and to release music and keep, you know, you know, we explore lots of avenues with music, the synchronization of stuff, you know, all these other bits and pieces. And for that to happen effectively, you have to have the headspace and the time to actually do it. You know, and there's only two of us that run our business. Um, so, you know, we have to be mindful of the fact that, you know, when you've got kids running around everywhere and, you know, when they get to the age that they're at and it's swimming clubs, football clubs, tennis clubs, mountain biking, this, scooters, skating, you know, it's just like, you know, the the, the, the amount of headspace um, that you've got, you know, everything gets written down. I've got to-do lists full of to-do lists. You mean you mean the juggling routine, basically? Oh, juggling. Plate, spinning. plate spinning of a major, major way. Victor Simonelli uh, says it so well. He says, you feel like the juggling clown at the circus and you're holding the dishes and you're going like this and someone throws you something else and you got to go, you know, it's like, yeah. okay. You know, yeah, yeah. I'll let everything fall because everyone's going to laugh at us. And that's what we try not to let happen, you know? Yeah. But I mean, you know, just to, you know, we'd sort of just to kind of cap off the, the, the pace of everything. I, I genuinely believe that the, you know, the scene, the music scenes, you know, various genres, I think would be so much better off um, if people slowed down a little bit, you know, Yeah, took the time, you know, enjoyed the process. You know, it's, I love mixing and spending, you know, two couple of days mixing a record. I love it. You know, finding out all those annoying little things that you can often find, you know, you might grab a clap off an old sample. I've still got my, um, I don't know if you can see it, I've still got my old emu sampler uh, down there. I still use that for a lot of sounds. And then when you listen to it in a room that's treated and all this, you go, wow, how has that clap got like this huge muddy mess of 30 hertz going on down there? 
and it's systematically going through each part, you know. And, and then you might end up just because you get really excited one afternoon and you've got like five or six hi-hat patterns and you think, why have I got all these hi-hat patterns? And then you think, do I get rid of some of them or do I just see if I can get them to blend? You know, do I put a little bit of mid-size EQ on this one and just let that give the impression that it's a bit wider or do I do a bit of panning? And You know, I love the sort of the, the intricate nature and the detail. The devil is in the detail. 